Lord, we come to learn from our brothers and sisters that have gone before us. To be encouraged by them to see the work that you've done in them. And Lord, we know that you want to do a fresh work in us today as well. So speak, and we will listen by your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. 1 Thessalonians is one of my favorite books. I say that about every book, but truly, 1 Thessalonians is. 1 and 2 Thessalonians will show us today in, in this model church, if you look at the bulletins, and I forget exactly how I worded it, but how the gospel spread, because we actually see this model church here. It's an incredible church, and a church that, again, that Paul was in, and there's a little debate whether he was there for three weeks or three months. Either way is a very short time. He takes them from salvation to the rapture of the church to the day of the Lord in three months. Some people have been in the body of Christ for years and never even grasped those things. These were people that were hungry for the word of God. And when you are born again, you have that hunger and thirst for righteousness. And sometimes we let the world creep back into our lives. I think it's true of all of us in some capacity. In the book of Revelation, again, speaking to the, the church of Ephesus, if you remember, they had all their doctrine right, but they had left that first love. See, that's what happens when we go back to the world. We leave that first love relationship. When you and I were born again and we realized that God snatched us out of that miry clay, we realized what he had done for us upon the cross. How tremendous that thought. There's a love that expresses, and you want to follow him. You want to obey him. You want to know what his word is. But then again, sometimes we let things come in, or, or sometimes we get so busy with the word and every little detail of the word, meaning that we're trying to do this and this and this and these rules and bullet lists instead of just walking in love and enjoying his love. And every morning, you and I need to begin with him. Lord, it's all about you forgive me for the busyness that's creeped into my life you're waiting here every morning for me and I run off in your face and I think all of us in some capacity are guilty of that we we've been up late we have to get up we got to go to work or whatever but if we were to make him the lord of our life if we're to seek first the kingdom of God, his righteousness, then we really need to say, Lord, this is your time, and nothing is going to get in a way of this time because, Lord, I need you. You want to hear from him. You need to, to set that time aside. And sometimes it, it may be months before you be, begin to hear him speak. When you're going and you leave this place today and whether you be in Walmart or Target or a restaurant, know that he is with you. His presence is with you. We need to learn to walk and be aware of his presence. In our mind, talk to him about what's going on in our lives. Walk in that intimate relationship and you and I will experience the Lord in a way that we have never, ever experienced 
before, but it's really the ball's in your court. He's there. He's waiting for you to respond. He's waiting for you to say, Lord, save me. And we need to be saved from ourselves. Well, again, the, the book of 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians, is written by Paul. And it was primarily a, a Gentile church founded probably about 50 A.D., 51 A.D., and referring to New Testament books, some people say Galatians is first, and some say this was the first book. Either way, it's about 20 years after Jesus Christ died upon the cross. They're expectant, looking for his return at any time. And I believe it is the best way to live in this life is expectant, anticipating that he could come any moment. Because then I'm ready. My house is in order. You do not know the last hour of your life. To be absent the body is to be present with the Lord. And you can have that assurance by putting the Lord first. And Paul, his, his custom, his habit, his pattern, whatever you want to call it, was typically to go to a Jewish synagogue first. And then after three weeks, then he would go to the Gentiles. He would go to the Gentiles again during the week. But again, in missions, it teaches us to the Jew first and to the Gentile. That was always as well. In fact, Paul loved, again, the nation of Israel, being an Israelite, so much he would have given up his salvation for the Jewish people. Would anybody here give up their salvation for anybody else? Boy, that's a hard call, isn't it? The only one that we might ever give it up for might be our children. If we could see our children come into the kingdom. But it's not possible to give up our salvation. Again, Paul was this missionary. If you remember, we we talked about Paul, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time on Paul. But if you look at verse 1, it says Paul and Silvanus and and Timothy. And and Paul, we remember, he was, again, a, a, a Jewish Man who was called to the Gentiles, trained and taught in Arabia by the Lord Jesus Christ. He was an eyewitness of Jesus. Not his death, but the risen Christ. He had the marks of a, a, a true apostle. And it's interesting because when we look at this as Paul, Savanius, and Timothy, and we're going to see that this book, while well, 14 of the books of the New Testament are written by Paul, they're co-authors here. Their hearts are in tune. In fact, Timothy, speaking about Timothy just for a moment, he says, I don't have anyone like Timothy who's truly concerned for you, who would lay down his life for you. God surrounded him with men to do the work of ministering. We talked about that last week when we are talking about those who are teaching. But look at Silvanius. His name is also called Silas in the book of Acts. And it's important to understand that he's the same person. He was a Jewish, again, was a Jewish Christian, possibly even a Roman citizen in Acts 16. He was also a, a leading member, a member, not the leader in Jerusalem. That was James, but, but here he was one of the leaders. And here he comes along with Paul. 
a leading member, an emissary. He was a prophet in Jerusalem. And he also risked his life for the sake of the Lord. You know, each of us are called to, to give our lives over to the Lord. Our, our lives are not our own. In fact, it's Christ who lives in us. The scripture makes it very clear. In true biblical Christianity, you've heard me say, is giving our life away. When's the last time you gave your life away to someone else? To esteem others higher than yourself? To die to yourself, pick up your cross and follow Him daily? To share the gospel with someone else? And that's what these men were doing. They were bringing the gospel, the, the good news. Well, Timothy's there too, as I mentioned. And Timothy is called our brother. Brother being Jewish, also a brother in the Lord. He was a fellow worker. He was a beloved brother and faithful child in the Lord. I like those words, faithful child in the Lord. Will you hear those words one day, good and faithful servant? You know, I pray in my prayer, Lord, I want to hear those words make me faithful. Please understand, you cannot be faithful on your own ability. You cannot try hard enough to be faithful. All you can do is surrender your life. And, and the Bible makes it clear, He is the one that makes you faithful. And I'm so thankful for that. He puts a desire in our heart and we just simply give our hearts over to Him. Timothy was also Paul's missionary associate. And then he was with Paul a long, extended time. Paul could delegate anything to him. Paul could have delegated the sparkle ministry to him. You all know the sparkle ministry, don't you? Those are the ones that go and clean the bathrooms and nobody knows about. What I'm saying is, Timothy would do anything for the Lord. There's a sign of a, a believer that's growing in the love and grace of Jesus Christ because they will do anything for the Lord Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter. We don't say, well, that's not my thing. That's a woman's thing. That's a man's thing. We just want to serve the Lord. And we're going to see this in the church because it's a model church. Now, it's interesting because we see they're the church of God to the church of the Thessalonians. The church we talked about is the people. It's the assembly. If you're speaking to a Jewish sensitive group, you're going to use the, the term assembly. They don't like that term church. It leaves them with a bad image because the church has persecuted the Jewish people in the past. And the church, ecclesia, is the called out once. If you are the body of Christ, you are a called out one. And that's important to understand. He's called us out of the world. He's called us unto himself. It's a dedicated group of disciples who follow Jesus. Disciples are, again, the ones who pick up their cross and follow him daily. They put themselves under him. They trust in him. They follow him. Notice in Colossians 4.15 up on the screen, it says, Greet the brethren who are in Laodicea, also Nympha, and the church 
that is in her house. See, the church is not the building. This is, this is only to facilitate you. The church is the people. It's not coming to church on Sunday morning or a Wednesday, but it's, it's coming together. It's congregating. What the church does is they congregate together. They want to study the Word of God. They want to pray together. They want to encourage one another, build one another up. That's the church. The church is a, a light unto this world, the salt unto the earth. We're called out. Our lives are different. And we have to ask the question, Lord, is my life different? Is it becoming more like you or is it more like that world? Lord, search my heart, as Jeremiah says. Is there any wicked way in my heart? God knows. But sometimes we can say, I I don't want to know. But God wants you to know. God wants you to come in and realize he's he's purchased you with the the blood of the lamb his own son he knew before the foundation of the world what your life would be like now and he's wanting to set you free from the bondage of this world and to serve him in love notice again Thessalonica it was the second most significant again city at that time it was the principal city in an area called macedonia and if you would see greece in your mind and again greece is at the bottom and macedonia is at the top of this area it was in that area was it was when we talk about greeks we we think of this hellenistic culture and the culture the the hellenistic culture is quite diverse it's quite worldly where the Romans conquered the Greeks, the Greeks conquered the world because the culture went around the world. Some have called it even a liberalism. The culture affected the Jewish people, and we'll talk more about that when we get into certain books. The city today is Thessaloniki and Orsalonica. And again, it's the second largest city within Greece. Again, it was Paul was wanting again to continue on his missionary journey and and the Lord closed that door. Have you ever had the Lord close the door on you? You're wanting to go one direction and he ends up moving you the other direction? Before I came back to Hawaii, I I was moving to Colorado every six months. I was looking to to buy property and move there, set up a nursery, close my nursery down or sell it and and move there. And, And God took the desire for my business away and moved me back to Hawaii, which I never thought I would come. He closes the door, he opens another door because he has something wonderful for you to be a part of. It's his work, we're just a part of that work. And when we come alongside what he's doing, we realize this is where the abundant joy is when we're right in the middle of his will. Again, there Paul sees a vision of a man in Macedonia. Come, come, help us. Instantly, He knew it was the Lord speaking to him, calling him. Come to Macedonia. He goes through a series of smaller towns and then Philippi. And you know the story of Philippi because we went through the book of Philippians. He was arrested and set free. And eventually he goes to Thessalonica and Berea and then on down to, again, Corinth. A major city. Notice also in verse 1, the church is in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. See, the church is dr- grounded in God. 
is grounded in God and exists by his power, this is important to understand, of God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We need the Spirit of God. Amen? Not just amen. It should be a real amen. You need him daily to bring illumination and understanding. In fact, one of the things we were talking about is putting a great big dove on here, a reminder of the Spirit of God on that rail right there. And that's what we're seeing in this book as we go on, the Spirit of God, the influence. It's the Spirit of God that I need when I speak to you or speak to anyone on the street. I need the Spirit. I can know all the words and is powerless without the Spirit of God. Again, the main emphasis is placed upon that, that union. The union that you have with the Father. That we can cry, Abba, Father, and yet we don't use Abba in our culture. But if you were in Israel and you heard, Abba, Abba, as they call their own Father, but we can call Abba. There have been men and women I know that have not had good fathers. And when they're born again, they realize that God is saying, I want to be your father. I want to be the father that you never had, that you never knew. And he wants that for each of us. Well, notice again, it says, to grace to you and peace. The sanctifying grace to you is what he gives. And that tranquilizing peace, that peace that passeth all understanding Knowing that he is on the throne no matter what's going on. We don't need to fret. The news comes on and you see the horror of it. We don't need to yell and scream at the TV. We don't need to let it rob the joy because our joy is in Jesus. And Jesus is in our hearts. Notice again in verse 2 it says, And we give thanks to God always for all of you making mention of you in our prayers. And he says, we, incorporating again, Paul, Silas, I'm going to say in this case, and Timothy. And they're these co-authors, their hearts are in tune, they're, they're concerned for them. This Paul was probably writing or dictating, they were dictating and adding things. Just as maybe your wife is writing something and, and, and the husband's saying, you know, don't forget this, don't forget that. They were as much concerned as Paul was for the Thessalonians. And that, that's, by the way, next week we're going to look again at, at, at really a model leader, what a leader is supposed to look like. And one of the things is they're concerned. They're concerned about you. And you look at Jesus and you know his concern so much that he demonstrated that love, that concern for you when he went to the cross to die for you while you were in your worst. And yet he knew and he went to the cross. So these three men are missionaries. In the real sense of this letter, they're all concerned. And they're concerned and they're encouraged at the same time and they're speaking about what they knew and what they saw. Again, it's been said there's two great independence days in the lives of Christians. One, the day that you choose to follow Jesus Christ. Set free from the, that bondage of, of sin, the penalty 
of sin. And the second day is when you really understand the implications of salvation. Everything that Jesus Christ has done for you and everything he has for you. He has so much. Think of your kids for a second. You want so much more for your kids and sometimes they're willing to settle for. I thought about that one time. Lord, is that true of me and my spiritual life? Am I settling for second best? Am I compromising? And I think each of us need to ask that question individually. Well, again, from that moment that a believer at that salvation curse, that transformation process begins. And as we surrender to God, day by day, and even moment by moment, He transforms our mind, and He teaches us His will. Have you heard somebody say, well, this is God's will. God wants me to do this, and then the next day God wants me to do something else, and the next day something else? It's because they really have not waited upon God, and they're reacting on their own emotions. Well, a key verse, I think, that, that kind of explains the book and about these people we're talking about is, and turn with me in your own text there, 1 Thessalonians 2.13, the next chapter. It says, For this reason we also constantly thank God when you receive the word of God, which you heard from us, you accept it not as the word of men, and that's so important, not the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. They received it not as the word of men, but really God's word. I was meeting with a guy last week who was very interesting. You know, Paul really didn't understand the Bible. He really had it all wrong. I have run into so many recently that are putting themselves over the authority of God, over the very word of God. And then so they can do what they want to do. Our God is able to protect and keep this word until this day that he takes you and me home. We have to just choose to believe and trust in the very word of God. We need to, when we grasp this truth, our lives are changed radically. Not only are our lives changed radically, the church is transformed. The church then is the light that he's called us to be. This place has been a dark place for so long, but it should be like a beacon light that goes out. In all of our lives, something is happening here. And what it is, is the Word of God, the Holy Spirit takes the Word of God, is working in the people of God, changing and transforming their lives as they just simply surrender to Him. A prayer that you and I might pray is, Lord, help me to let go. Help me to surrender to you. If need be, remove those things in my life that are hindering me in my personal relationship with you. Believe, and it will be done. 
in his time. Well, look with me in verse 3. We see the, the church is really a community in, in which the distinguishing mark by faith is hope, faith, hope, and love. Look at verse 3. It says, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith, your labor of love, your steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ, in the presence of God and Father. And I love that. See, what they're doing is remembering what they saw in their lives, this, this radical change, and what they know is happening now in the making of the mention of the future. See, they're, they're, they're going to see the past, the present, and the future in this context, is, in this passage. And the first phrase you see is that work of faith. And Paul pairs up the, the work and the faith together. And, and, and again, and faith is expressing itself through love. Real faith is expressed in works, actions. And this idea, the work of love, is in the past tense, or excuse me, the, the work of faith, when believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. There's one work that you're called to do. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you'll be saved. The only work you're called to do, believe in Him. When you've believed in him, you're saved. And out of a loving heart, then you find you will do works. But the work you need to do is believe in him. And believing in him produces works that save. James 2, 18, I mentioned in a roundabout way. But someone may well say, you have faith, I have works. Show me your faith without works, and I will show you my faith by my works. True saving faith produces works. We want to go and tell people about Jesus. We want to go and minister to people. We want people to know about Jesus. We want to invite people to church. We're going to be praying for people, our family, our friends. We're going to be trusting and resting in Him. That's a work. Well, the second thing you see is that labor of love. Labor means work. Labor is hard. Labor in love. That you love someone so much, you give your time. You'll give the shirt off your back. Well, again, the context of this, it's this labor that's prompted by love. It's deeds. This love produces deeds of, of ministering to others. Genuine love is always willing to go the distance. Exhaustion and weariness. A mother will be so exhausted, but she'll minister physically to her own kids. She will deny herself for her kids. That's the earthly example. How much more being spiritual that we will give even more of ourselves to the Lord Jesus Christ and certainly to one another. See, love knows no limits. It just loves. It just flows naturally. And that ultimate source of love really comes from God. And there was a person years ago that I, I knew, and he, he was the, the most unloving person, people said. I don't know how he could be a Christian. I don't see the love. Love is something to be seen in our lives. I knew he loved. He just had a hard time showing it. God began that work, and God finished that work in him. 
Love is the mark of a, a true believer. Jesus gave us that example. God demonstrated love for us while we're in our worst, while we're yet sinners. That means that we need to be patient with one another. When, when people are really trying our patience, people do try our patience, don't they? Yeah, it's a test. It's a good test. It reminds us we're not where we will be one day. It reminds us that we still need to surrender and we need to trust in the Lord. Well, the third phrase is that steadfastness of hope. See, there was that work of faith in the past, believing, trusting in Jesus Christ that was changing our lives, and that loving, that everyday action. But here it's talking about that steadfastness of hope, which refers to endurance inspired by this hope. A hope that longs and patiently waits for the imminent return of Christ. This willing to endure anything. Because you know that the Lord Jesus Christ is coming. Look in your text with me in 1 Thessalonians 1 verse 9 and 10. Let's start there. For they themselves report about us what kind of reception we had with you and how you turn to God from idols notice to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom whom he raised from the dead that is Jesus who rescues us from the wrath to come chapter 3 verse 13 is on the screen so that he may establish your hearts without blame and holiness before the God the Father and the coming of the Lord Jesus with all of his saints Every chapter, one, two, three, four, five, ends with this idea of the Lord coming. That's so important that we are looking for the Lord's coming each day. That our houses are in order, spiritual houses, that is. I like what William Barclay said. They had an unshakable confidence in the Lord regardless of their circumstances. They needed this kind of enduring hope in view of the adversity. As Barclay simply, aptly put it, a man can endure anything as long as he has hope. For then he is walking not in the night, but in the dawn. They had this unshakable hope. They were going through persecution themselves, we'll see in a moment. But they were longing for the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me ask you a question. Are you longing for the Lord Jesus Christ? Wouldn't this be a good day for him to come? Be careful if you've got a bullet list, you've got ten things you've got to do today. Lord, let me get these ten things done first, then you can take me. No. If you're really longing for him, just call. I'll come. I remember when, when I would talk to Judy on the phone before we got married and and I'd just wait for her to call. And there would be the dash for the phone. We should have that same excitement. Lord, this could be the day. This would be a great day. In fact, this would be a good time for him to come while I'm in the pulpit, wouldn't it? You know, there are things and times that we would like him to come, and there's times that we wouldn't want to have him come. That's why we need to have our house in order. Again, the second most important day, again, in the believer's life, first the conversion, 
I want to add one more thing is the, the graduation or the coronation. You see, when you've been born again, the next big event in a spiritual sense is when the Lord says, Ron, come home. Tim, come home. We may grieve and mourn if someone goes, but I mean, that's it. When the Lord calls you. I love that story, Enoch, if you remember. He walked with the Lord one day. He wasn't. One day, you'll be walking with the Lord, and the Lord will say, you know what? You're closer to my home than your home. Come home and be with me today. The call of love. And you'll hear those words, good and faithful servant. Because he's finished the work in you. Notice the church is a, a community which is, is loved and chosen by God. In verse 4 it says, beloved by God and his choice of you. On the screen it says, First John 4.10 and this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be propitiation for our sins. Jesus bore the shame, the pain, the penalty. He gave himself. And that's so important to understand. See, Paul gives another reason for the thanks, shifting again from the focus upon man, really, to what God has done. Today, God says, you're my beloved. Turn to the one next to you and say, you're the Lord's beloved. Now, you know, we get carried away sometimes and we say, Jesus loves you, but we never tell him the gospel message. Why are you the beloved? God wants every person in this world to be his beloved. For God so loved the world, not the lacked, I do believe in election. I'm still confused on that, like many others. But God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, whosoever believe shall not perish but have everlasting life. He wants you, if you've never believed, just to believe and find out that you are the elect. So sweet, those words. Beloved by God, that means you are the objects of God's love. And that we should expect that God's going to lavish us with his love and everything that happens in your life is the result of love, God's love for you. That he's going to use these things, he's going to cause these things, whatever happens, for the good for you because he loves you. And he loves you with an everlasting love and you are his choice. It means you're the, the, the subject of divine selection and while we don't fully understand that, it is his sovereign grace. He selected them out for salvation, and he selected you. Now, no one should ever say, well, I'm not God's elect, and I'm not going to believe. All they need to do is believe and find out they are elect. It becomes a cop-out for so many people. But notice those that he chooses when he chose Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6. For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be the people of his own possession out of all the people that are on the face of the earth. He chose them to be the light and the salt. He wanted to use them to reveal himself to all the other nations. 
He chose him with a purpose to be with him, but also that others might know him. They weren't big, large, but he chose them. He's chosen you. And that's incredible. Now think for a moment, a, a box of candy somebody gives you. You look in the box and all of them look the same, right? Pretty much all the same. You look over here, you look over there. There's not a, any differences you notice, but you choose one. God chose you just like that to put his love upon you, to make you a part of his life, to give you a purpose for living, and to bring you home to be with him one day. See, the doctrine of divine election, it's confusing, it divides people, it even becomes divisive within the church, sadly, that you have to believe one way or the other. We just teach it as it comes. Sometimes it shows the responsibility of man, and sometimes it shows God's doing it. Accept them both. God's in control. A seminary professor once said, he tried to, you try to explain election and you'll lose your mind, but explain it away and you will lose your soul. Just accept it. Accept the fact that God's chosen you. He wants to lavish you with his, his love and you just need to be in his will. Look with me in verse 5. We see the gospel of God. For our gospel did not come to you in word only. And that's important to understand. See, uh, the apostle here puts the, the, the messengers in the background because the real focus is on the gospel. The gospel is the good news. And sometimes we can be really good at, at giving the good news, but if people don't know the bad news, there is no good news. They need to know they're going to hell. They need to know they're separated from God. They need to know they're, they're sinners. So there is no good news unless they understand the bad news first. What's important is, is that gospel message. The message deserves the foremost attention. Notice again what it says. It's the word alone. It's the word of God, yes. But it's the, again, the word of God is the Spirit's sword. And that's important to understand why, why there's power there. It's like a car out front in a sense, and I hate to liken it this way. The end, it's got a big engine there, but until the key is turned on, there's no power. In this case, the, the Spirit without the Word is weaponless. And the Word without the Spirit is powerless, is what it's saying. What it's saying in another sense for me is that I can give you the Word of God, but if the Spirit is not speaking through me and taking that Word and working in individual hearts, the Word... It's falling on deaf ears. Now, we know his word does not come back without a void, but it's the, the Spirit takes the word of God. He, he's the one that brings the conviction to the heart. And it's important to understand. So it, it was, again, he says the gospel did not come to you in word only. He makes this emphasis on the importance of the Holy Spirit. That we need to pray, Lord, bring us illumination, bring us understanding. Remove the scales from our eyes. Maybe you have a, a family or a friend that you're praying for. One of the things we need to pray is, Lord, remove the scales so that they would see and hear the good news. 
that they would see you. And it's important to understand. Verse 5, it, it says, but also in, in power. Which again is important in the sense is pointing to that power that's within that person that's giving the message. And, and the spirit, there, there, the spirit comes in you. He's in you. But you need this empowering. You need to be led by the spirit when you, you speak the word. Whether it's counseling someone or speaking the gospel. Or being patient, he gives you these things. Now the verse primarily speaks of this inward power, which the the speakers are speaking a a message. And the power shows itself in a variety of methods. Sometimes we we see it again. Uh, The power is signs and wonders. We see that again in the New Testament. Authenticating a worker. Authenticating a, a work. Sometimes it's the conviction in preaching. I think of Greg Laurie, evangelist, stands before 50, 60, 75,000 people and he speaks. And the Holy Spirit speaks through him and, and draws a crowd to himself. And as you pray for me, as you pray for this congregation, that we would have that Spirit's power. And remember, it's him. Not you, not the man, great glory. But the Spirit, the Spirit of God. And probably in the context is this really the both signs and wonders that Paul would sometimes when he went into a community would demonstrate these things and then the power, he speak, the power again of conviction. Notice Romans 1.16, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Notice for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first and then also to the Greek. Second, we see Acts 1.8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be my witnesses. And see, I believe why this is talking about the day of Pentecost, I believe that when a believer is born again, the power comes upon you to be witnesses, a, a changed person. You're a new creature in Christ. And then sometimes we just go out of the house without him in a sense. As if we don't need him. We need his spirit every hour. Now we know the word of God is unique. In fact, Hebrews 4, 12. Notice what it says. The word of God is living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword, piercing as far as the division of soul and the spirit, both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Well, it's powerful. It's the Holy Spirit that does that work. He's the one that illuminates our minds. He's the one that's convicting our minds. He's the one that formulates the message that we would speak. A message of integrity. A message of clarity. And what you and I need today, more than anything else, is more of the Holy Spirit today in our lives. We can be saved and have the Spirit in us, but we need more of Him and less of ourselves. He's the one who produces this inward witness within us. Assures us of the truth that you know the word of God is truth. No matter what anybody says, no matter what the the news is saying, you know what's going to happen in the end. You know how this book ends. You know. And it's important to understand whether it's preaching and conviction or just assurance of, of the future that God's in control, that he's coming back again to the 
unbeliever, he declares them to be guilty. They know in their hearts they're convicted. He declares the consequences of, of the guilt and sin. And for some, for the believer, the, the conviction of holding on strong to the belief. When people try and get you to believe a, another gospel, which is not even another gospel. You know that Jesus is the Son of God. He's coming again. No matter what goes on, he's on the throne. In fact, in Romans 8, 38 and 39, it, it kind of gives us this picture of this person that is convinced. Well, look on the screen with me. For I'm convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. You know, it's, it's him that assures our hearts this conviction. Nothing can separate us from the love of God, no matter what's going on. Anything that God allows in your life, he will use it for good if we let him, then that's the key. Well, again, look at verse 5, just as you know, what kind of men we proved to, to be among you for your sake. See, their lives were undeniable. They were new creations. They, when they saw their life, they were witnesses that there is a God. And there was a new life in Christ, and their lives are being laid down for him. There was not a question. They weren't there because of greed or anything. They loved, and they loved with the love of God. Well, look with me in verse 6. We see they welcomed and received the message, and that's important. In spite of their suffering they were going through, they received the word in much tribulation, and you also became imitators of us and the Lord. See, the gospel had totally changed their life. Look again on the screen, 1 Thessalonians 2.14. For you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you also endured the same suffering at the hands of your own countrymen, even as they did of the Jews. See, they were, they were going through this persecution, this tribulation, and it didn't faze them. They were assured their future. They knew their hope. They knew that God was in control. They welcomed the word of God under this great pressure of affliction. Anyone here like pain? I don't think so. I'm going to take the easy route if I could in my flesh. But they are willing to go through anything for Christ Jesus. They welcomed the word. Look at verse 6 again. And notice how they did with joy, and the source is the Holy Spirit. In fact, let me read Romans 8, verses 17 and 18. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God, fellow heirs of Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we will also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us so that you became example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. Their lives. People were talking about them. Are people talking about you? What did they say about you? I've heard they say all kinds of things about me. But do they say you're like Christ? That you're a Jesus freak? That's one of the best things they could call people at one time. Jesus freaks. Given over to Jesus. Well, look with me in verse 8. These people, they were a contagious church. Is that true of us? Contagious, that we infect everyone with the love of Jesus Christ? 
Look in verse 8. For the word of the Lord had sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia. Now, Macedonia at the top, Achaia all the way down at the bottom. But also in every place your faith toward God has gone forth so that we have no need to say anything. See, sounded forth literally means to blow a trumpet. It was going out a trumpet. Unlike the Pharisees, if you remember in the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 6, when they would give an offering, they would go, do-do-do! Everybody look, and they put the money in the offering. No, not like that. Not in hypocrisy. Their lives were so turned over to Christ, so given over to Him, everyone was talking about the change in their lives and that they were willing to lay down their life for Christ. The word was going out like throwing a rock into a pond. It was rippling out again and again. And the message, it was clear. And the message was distinct. Well, verse 9 continues. For they themselves report what kind of reception we had with you and how you turned to God from idols. That's an interesting one. And see, in the culture, they, they had many gods. They worshipped the, the gods of Egypt. Now, they had a god there that was Cabarrus. He was a martyred hero, okay? He was murdered by his two brothers, and they buried with symbols of royal power, and he was expected to return to help all the, the poor people, the needy people in Thessalonica. It's interesting that that message paved the way, some people believe, for when Paul came and told them about Jesus, what Jesus had done. When they come to that saving faith in Jesus Christ. Now what did they need to do? They needed to repent. That basic meaning repent means to turn around, to, to make a complete change. Only true repentance leads to, again, spiritual salvation. And a spiritual relationship with God. That's important to understand. Without repentance, true repentance, there is no relationship with God. But what did they do? They turned to God from their idols. I had a Buddha in my house. I thought he was cute. You know, I, I would rub his little belly when i come in the, the house. Buddha went out the door. Anything that, that, that would associate me with any other culture, I got rid of in my life. That's what they were doing. Some of them, they were worshiping. Some of them, they just had just to cover the basis. When you come to God, there's some things in your life that need to go out of your life. You don't want people to associate you with these things. Oh, you cover all the bases. You believe in this and, and believe in that. And that's what they did. It's interesting. Let me read Acts 19, verses 18 through 20. Many also of those who had believed kept coming, confessing, disclosing their practices. And many of those who practiced magic brought their books together, began burning them in the sight of everyone, and they counted up the price of them and found 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord was growing mightily and prevailing. See, believers, that's what we do. We, we get rid of anything, burn anything that does not glorify Christ. Anything that would be in the way. Anything that we might worship. Sometimes it may even be a business. Sometimes it may even be relationships in our life. they got to go. Because there's only one true God. Sometimes we may have to give up our job totally. 
Because we know that the job doesn't glorify God. They want us to do something dishonest. Well, I'm going to trust you, Lord, and trust you alone. You promised to provide my needs. And that's what they're doing. There was a total change. And change became because of the, they heard the word of God. The spirit of God took that word, worked in them, and they made them a new creation in Christ. So these Thessalonians did well. They turned to God from their idols. And notice what it says next, to serve the living and true God. That's what believers do. That's what the true church does, the model church. They're, they're serving him in some capacity. Serving him, whether it be here in the community, uh, maybe life care, hospice, your neighbors. But serving him means not just doing dirty work or just putting something in a wheelbarrow or something like that. It means living that life of Christ and telling people about Christ. First, we've got to live it, and then we tell them about it. And that will look a little different for each one. So this church, the church of God in Thessalonica, was a model church. Model why? Because number one, they loved the Lord Jesus Christ. They loved the Lord Jesus Christ, and they served him. They served him with all their heart, mind, and soul, and strength. And second, they loved each other. They loved each other. We're going to see that as we go through this book. And they served one another. Served in love. Not grumbling, not murmuring. They served him. They saw it as an opportunity to love. You know, there's a third thing that I really love. They love the lost people. Their lost neighbors. They loved them. And they lived. And they told them about Jesus. See, love is the mark of a model church. Love. In obedience. It's interesting, though. This is, this is how the, the church spreads the gospel. Love. Love will motivate you to do something. Not silent, on your own, in the community where God has put you. Now think with me just for a moment in the, the book of Acts, chapter 1. Jesus is going up to be with the heaven. And the angel, the disciples, first of all, are standing there. They're perplexed and seeing Jesus kind of float up. I don't know what that would be like. One day we'll see that. But they're standing there and watching. And, and the angel says, why do you stand there looking up into heaven? Probably even disappeared. And they're standing there. They're just looking. What next? Sometimes that's what Christians are like. Standing there, looking. What next in life? Well, Jesus is coming back. He's coming back and we need to get busy. See, salvation is not just about me. It's, I'm part of it. But we need to get busy. See, when we grasp that idea that we are to follow Christ, follow in his footsteps. We, we look at him and we see how he affects people, what is pleasing to him. We will not be standing any longer. We will not stand and watch. What next, Lord? What, what's going to happen next? No. We will get busy. We won't just do nothing. We will get busy. 
We know that time is short. People know there's time that is short, and, and they're so busy in their own lives, and they know it's time. He could come at any time. But what are you doing for Christ? It's only the things that you do for Christ that will last. It may be giving. It may be praying. It's different for every one of us. You can't compare your life to anyone else. Only what God shows you in your own life. But that person that grasped that idea, he wants his life to make a difference. The difference in his family, the difference in his community, the difference in his workplace. That's what the contagious church does because the people's faith are contagious. See, the Thessalonican church had this kind of contagious enthusiasm. Their lives were changed. It was affecting others. Would you stand with me? Father, we thank you for today. We, we thank you for your mercies that they're new every morning. And Lord, you have a hope that you have given us. Lord, we know that you're coming soon and we don't want to stand anymore. We, we, want, to, we want to be right in the middle of your will. So fill our minds with uh, the direction, the guidance that you would have us do, that we would honor you. All God's people said, Amen.